Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Dr. John Stott was a very influential British pastor, theologian, and author who ministered during the 20th century. During a sermon many years ago, while he was still alive, he once quoted the administrator of the largest psychiatric hospital in London, who had told him this, If the people here only knew what it means to be forgiven, I could dismiss half of them at once. Perhaps this is why the uh, liberal 19th century theologian Horace Bushnell said a hundred years earlier, forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's greatest achievement. Although I would not agree with the rest of Bushnell's theology, I do agree with him on this point, and I think the Lord would agree as well. The parable of the prodigal son is arguably the most famous story in the entire Bible because of the characters, the emotion, and its ability to resonate with people of all ages from all times. This parable has garnered more attention from theologians, painters, poets, musicians, composers, screenwriters, and actors than any other story that Jesus told. And we have the privilege of studying it today. Today we're beginning part two of a series I began two years ago on the parables of Jesus called Once Upon a Time. If you uh, please would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. If you haven't done so already, pull out the sermon note handout you received when you came in this morning. If you don't have one yet, you can grab one off the information table in the back. And if you forgot your Bible, you can borrow one of ours. It's on that table as well. Uh, Let me just review some things that we learned uh, two years ago uh, when I did part one of this parable series. By starting just by explaining what is a parable? Well, a parable is a short, memorable story based on real life with a powerful truth embedded in it. Or the other way I would succinctly define it is this, a parable is a earthly story with a heavenly truth. It's an earthly story with a heavenly truth. The New Testament word for parable comes from two Greek words which together mean to to throw alongside. Uh, The word visually depicts something physical or common next to something spiritual or abstract. This, in essence, is what Jesus did when he told parables. He would take something from everyday life, place it alongside a spiritual truth, and sort of wrap it up in a burrito. By my count, the Gospels contain between 27 and 32 parables in total, Some commentators use a narrower definition of a parable and some take a broader definition. That's why there's 
There's not consensus on the exact number. But however, all of Jesus' parables are contained in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are none in the Gospel of John. It's worth noting that parables are not allegories in which every detail has some sort of symbolic meaning. So we'll need to be careful not to overanalyze the objects in the stories. Jesus' parables also are not fables in which animals or inanimate objects uh, are used to teach a moral. They're not that either. Again, parables are real-life stories, illustrations that contain a spiritual truth or truths. Now, why did Jesus speak in parables? Um, Well, in addition to fulfilling a prophecy from, from Isaiah several centuries earlier that he would teach in parables... Uh, There are two other reasons he liked to use them, and the Lord mentions these in Matthew chapter 13. We won't turn there because of time constraints, but I would encourage you to look up these verses later. It's Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. It's there that Jesus gives two reasons, and these are on your outline for you to jot down. The first reason Jesus liked to speak in parables was that A, letter A, they paint truth. They paint truth for his listeners. In Matthew 13, 11, uh, he says to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And the stories that Jesus told during his earthly ministry uh, did more than identify with, instruct, or inspire his listeners. To those who really wanted to hear spiritual truths, Jesus' parables revealed lessons about his kingdom in high-definition color. The second reason Jesus liked to speak in parables was the letter B. They protect truth. They protect truth. In Matthew 13, he says this about his enemies, but to them... The kingdom has not been given. Seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And when Jesus taught in parables, they revealed whose hearts were already hardened and made it difficult for Jesus' enemies to collect sound bites so they could prosecute him. They were always following him around, trying to see if they could catch him saying something that they could use against him to get him arrested and crucified. Additionally, Jesus wanted to protect truth because he was living and teaching in the age of the Roman Empire, which occupied Israel at the time. And so uh, the Romans, of course, were known for being very uh, quick to react to anyone who uh, might suggest or even hint at being insurrectionist. And so Jesus wanted to try and not sound like an insurrectionist, so he would cloak or kind of disguise his teaching in parables. Now, the parable of the prodigal son is the third story in a triad of parables recorded in Luke 15. Uh, The first two parables I preached on back in 2019, they're still on our website. If you want to hear that message, you can go back and find it on our website or podcast But these first two parables were the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. They were told by Jesus in order to show us that lost people matter to God. 
and that he looks for lost people, and therefore we should too. In this parable here, the prodigal son that we'll be studying today, Jesus shines a spotlight now on the heart of the father. The parable of the prodigal son shows us, and this is our big idea for today, it shows us that the holy God we've offended is always willing to forgive repentant sinners. The holy God that we've offended is always willing to forgive repentant sinners. I'll give you a moment to write that down. And then if you would, look with me at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, so we can refresh our minds on where Jesus is when he tells this parable. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? Now tax collectors were, back in those days, wealthy extortioners who worked for the Roman Empire. They were worse than the IRS. They collected money, obviously taxes, to help fund the empire and all of its infrastructure and its army, but tax collectors were often crooked and would take more than they should. They would take more off the top so that they could live a very lavish lifestyle. The sinners that's mentioned in verse 1 were most likely non-Jews, often called Gentiles. They were not part of the Pharisees' religious establishment. Both groups were considered by the Pharisees to be the unspiritual scum of the earth. And this is why we're told in verse 2 that the Pharisees were literally murmuring and criticizing Jesus again for violating their cultural norms. And so, one of Jesus' countermeasures to such criticism and I always find this fascinating about him, was he would tell a parable in which the people in his audience became the characters in the story. (laughs) Something I wish I was good enough to do as a parent. Whenever one of my children is disobeying or arguing with me, I wish I was as good as Jesus where I could say, there once was a teenager who... (laughs) And so here's the cast of this parable. The father represents God, the younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners in verse 1, whom Jesus was eating with, and the older son represents the Pharisees from verse 2. Now, some of you may know or some of you may not know, the word prodigal means to spend resources recklessly or wastefully. It's an adjective that's used to describe how this son lives. Jesus told this parable so that we would know God prefers, he prefers to have a relationship with repentant sinners instead of punishing the unrepentant. He'll do the latter if he has to, but it's not his preference. The Lord prefers to have a relationship with the repentant. And so, having 
laid the groundwork for us and given you the context. Let's dive into the story starting in Luke chapter 15, and I'll read verses 11 to 16. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that this story tells us, and that is the need, the need for our salvation was created by our rebellion. The need for our salvation was created by our rebellion. In Jewish families of this day, it was tradition for fathers to pass their estate down to their sons upon their death. Old Testament law states that the oldest son was entitled to two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would be entitled to one-third. However, making such a request while his father was still alive, was considered a massive, unforgivable offense. Such a request would have brought great shame to this young man's family. It publicly communicated his desire to no longer associate with the family, and in essence, it signed his father's death certificate before he had even died. Now, portraying this, the younger son in this way, though, is meant to show us how rude and insensitive and selfish we all are before God and before we are born again. I'm sorry, I should say that again. How rude and sensitive and selfish we all are towards God before we are born again. So that's the connection here. And so the father, you see in verse 12 of your Bible, divided the property between them. Now, in Jewish culture, the father had the authority to rebuke his younger son. He could have negotiated a temporary settlement, or he could have pleaded with him to stay, but he didn't. Instead, the father graciously and generously gave the son his portion of the inheritance. Jesus portraying the Father in this way is meant to convey just how gracious and patient God is with unbelievers before they repent. That God doesn't instantly strike a sinner with lightning the first time they yell no as a toddler to their parents. Or the first time they throw a toy at their sibling. And so, next we see in verse 13, the younger son took a journey into far country into a far country, excuse me. This statement further describes the rebellion of the son. Notice, notice how he didn't just take his one-third inheritance and settle down next door to his family. 
Notice how he didn't just go to the next county. No, it says he went to another country. That's how far he wanted to get away from his father. This son wanted nothing to do with his father, and therefore he went as far away as possible. And the same is true of all of us before we came to know Christ. And it's still true for those who don't know Christ. Our rebellion makes us want to get as far away from God as possible because we want to love our sin and enjoy it instead of being with Him. It's important for us to realize that the Bible has nothing good to say about those who are far from God. And it has nothing good to say about what our lives are like before Christ for those of us who know Him as our Lord and Savior. Just like rebels, we revolted against God's authority. Just like thieves, we stole His glory, taking credit for things on our own. Just like egomaniacs, we were self-serving. And just like politicians, we manipulated people to get what we wanted. And just like tabloid writers, we spread lies about God that were not true. Like God loves everybody and Everybody goes to heaven, or God helps those who help themselves, and other things that are out there about God that are not true or nowhere found in Scripture. The reason God sent a Savior to earth is that we all needed to be saved from our rebellion. Let's continue to look at the story in verse 17. But when he came to himself, this younger son said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." Here's number two in your outline. The prerequisite for our salvation is repentance. The prerequisite for our salvation is repentance. Verses 17, 18, and 19 contain a textbook picture of genuine repentance. The New Testament word for repent literally describes a U-turn. To repent means to, to turn away from our sin and back towards God because we cannot chase sin, and follow the Lord. And let's look closely at the text so we can observe what genuine repentance looks like. This is helpful not only for us to know whether we are saved, but it also can help you discern whether someone else is actually saved, whether it be a, a, a child or uh, perhaps a friend or a loved one or uh, a co-worker who says they're a Christian. Here are some things that you can look for in their lives. Repentance includes, letter A, an awareness of our rebellion. It includes an awareness of our rebellion. We see this in verse 17 where it says, He came to himself. Some translations render this, when he came to his senses. It's describing what we would call that awakening or that light bulb moment where the, where the light bulb goes off in the head, like, what am I doing with my life? 
It's that moment when we realize how far we've fallen or how fallen we really are. Letter B, repentance also includes an aspiration to be right with God. Notice how this young, young son says, I will arise and I will go to my father. The son realizes he's broken the most important relationship in his life. And he wants to restore that relationship. One sign of genuine versus fake repentance is a sincere desire to be in a right relationship with God instead of just wanting what God offers. There's a big difference. So there's an awareness of our rebellion. There's an aspiration to be right with God. Letter C, there's an agreement with God about our sin. There's an agreement with God about our sin. We see it in verse 18. This young man says, I will go say to my father, I have sinned against you and heaven. This broken young man doesn't make excuses for his sin. Notice he doesn't blame anyone else. He, he doesn't try to minimize his rebellion. He completely owns it. No excuses. In the same way, unbelievers who are genuinely repentant and want a relationship with the Lord, they don't try to argue or negotiate with God. Instead, they come to the Lord on their knees, ready to surrender to His terms. To His terms. Next, letter D, repentance comes with an attitude of humility. There's an attitude of humility. Notice in verse 19 just how radically this young man's been changed in Jesus' story. He says, I am no longer worthy. Notice the sense of entitlement that he had earlier in the story is now gone. In fact, he's so humbled, all he wants to be when he's welcomed back is a servant in his father's household. He's not even asking to be restored to the same status that he was before he rebelled. In a similar fashion, repentant sinners, in essence, say to the Lord, God, you owe me nothing, and I owe you everything. I would consider it a privilege just to be your servant, Lord, if you would forgive me, if you would save me from my sin. So there's an attitude of humility. I once heard about a Sunday school teacher who asked her class of children what repentance means. So a little boy put up his hand eagerly wanting to impress his teacher and, and, and said to her, it's, it's being sorry for your sin. And then a little girl raised her hand and said, teacher, it's, it's being sorry enough to quit. Being sorry enough to quit. I just, I just got to ask you, can you point to a time in your life when you've turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation? I, I'm not asking how long you've been coming to church. I'm not asking whether you grew up in a Christian family. I'm not asking if you vote Republican or if you're pro-life. I'm not asking about any of that. 
I'm asking, is there a time in your life where you can say, on that day, that year, I turned from my sin and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I surrendered to his lordship. And if you have, if there is a time when you've done that, I just I want to ask, do you see yourself in this story? Can you, can you look back in your life before Christ and what the Lord did in your life bringing you know, up to the point of your conversion? Can you, see, can you see yourself in here? Well, I know I can. I, I, when I was studying this this week, I had events in my life leading up to my conversion in college that were just lining up. Yep, I did that. Yep, I, I did that. I did that. I did that. And then, boom, this is where the Holy Spirit anvil fell on my head and woke me up. This is where I came to my senses and I realized I needed a relationship with the Lord. So can you see yourself in the story? The holy God we've offended is always willing to forgive repentant sinners. Let's look at the text again and read verses 20 to 21. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's point number three in your outline. The goal of the gospel is not forgiveness but reconciliation. The goal of the gospel is not forgiveness, but reconciliation. Reconciliation is the process of restoring friendly relations between two warring parties. And these two verses correct a myth that many American Christians believe, and it's this. They think the primary purpose of the gospel is to provide forgiveness for their sins. It's actually not. The primary purpose of the gospel is to reconcile us with God. And this includes forgiving our sins when we repent. But it's not supposed to be the most important thing we get. The greatest thing that we get in the gospel is God. This is extremely important for you to realize. It's an extremely important distinction because if all we want is forgiveness, then we're just using Jesus instead of wanting Him. And if we think that forgiveness is all the gospel gives us and all that we need or all that we should want, then we won't pursue a relationship with him. We'll just take what Jesus offers us. We'll just want the benefits of heaven instead of the God who's waiting for us in heaven. It would be like, imagine, it would be like you inviting me over to your house for dinner, but instead of me coming to spend time with you, I, I only come because your house is nicer than mine. 
I, I, I sit there and I, I grab the remote and throw my feet up, take my shoes off so you can see my stinky socks and smell them. And I'm, I'm channel surfing on your big screen TV watching what I want to watch as though it's my house. It would be like me swimming in your pool or helping myself to your cupboards and all your food. Or as they say, having refrigerator rights when you just invited me over to dinner so you could get to know me better. It'd be like me showing no interest in getting to know you better, but only wanting the benefits that come with being in your house. Wouldn't you be offended by that? Wouldn't, wouldn't you be offended if you discovered that my real motive in wanting to come was not to get to know you, but to just use your stuff? The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, when he wrote this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciles us to himself because he wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want to be used by us. And dear loved ones, that means, that means that if you said the sinner's prayer, just because you wanted what Jesus offers, instead of wanting Jesus himself, then you believe the wrong gospel. The real gospel, it gets people right with God, so they long to be with him no matter where he is. Now, this is a great concern of mine for the Christian church because, because I just see so many professing Christians being spiritually apathetic and doing nothing to grow their relationship with the Lord. Or, or they maybe try to do it on their own terms. Well, I experience God in nature. So I take a lot of Sundays off from church to go worship the Lord in the mountains or at the beach. Really? Not that there's anything wrong with taking some time off, but again, we have to come and have a relationship with God on His terms, not our own. And His terms are, worship me in my church on Sundays, spend time in my word throughout the week, get to know me by what's revealed about me in my word, spend time with me in prayer. But there are so many Christians who are not doing some of these basic things, yet still claiming they're forgiven and going to heaven. Yet they never talk about loving Jesus. I never hear them say, I love the Lord. I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. I'm so excited about what I'm learning in my relationship with the Lord. See, the real gospel gets people right with God. And they want to be with him no matter where he is. Next. The goal of the gospel is reconciliation. Let's look at verses 22 to 24 and we can see how the Lord responds when that reconciliation takes place. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost but is found and they began to celebrate. Here's point four in your outline. The Lord's response to our salvation is rejoicing. It's rejoicing. And remember when I said earlier, the Father in this story represents God the Father. We should also note that this parable ends in celebration just as the parables of the lost sheep and lost coin did. This again emphasizes the Heavenly Father's joy when a sinner repents of their sin and comes home. Just as we celebrate a baby being born here on earth, the Lord celebrates when a sinner is born again in heaven. You may remember me saying uh, when I preached on the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, I have, I have yet to find any other place in the scriptures where the worship in heaven stops because of something that took place here on earth. And that is... As Jesus said earlier in chapter 15, the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. And what I understand that to mean is that in February of 1991, when Kerry Knack was at the University of Iowa and finally repented of his sin after the Lord working on him for a few years, that heaven stopped and the angels rejoiced and said, Kerry, it's saved, man! And they did the same for you, those of you that know Jesus. There was rejoicing in heaven. And so Jesus paints a vivid, high-definition picture of this rejoicing here when this prodigal son comes home and he's restored in his relationship with his father. The robe and the ring and the sandals all signified something much greater than sonship. It's important for us to understand because the ring signified authority and the sandals would be those only a free man would wear, not servants. Servants didn't get sandals like this. Servants often were barefoot. And so, in essence, this is important for us to understand is that the son who repents and he comes back, he's restored to a higher level of honor than he first had. In a similar fashion, the new believer receives an abundance, an abundance of undeserved perks and privileges when they become part of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 24, for this is my son, he was dead, now he's alive again, he was lost, now he's found. In verse 24, Jesus repeats the language of lost and found that he used in the first two parables earlier in the chapter. He also uses the same imagery that Paul used when writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. Both Paul and Jesus are illustrating the spiritual condition of believers before and after their conversion. So before Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses. Spiritually dead, unable to respond to any spiritual stimulus. But through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we are made alive in Christ. 
Ephesians 2, verse 5. Dead, now alive spiritually. And that's what's being conveyed by the Father. And that's the reason the Father wants to celebrate. So, the Lord's response to our salvation is rejoicing. That's because the holy God we've offended is always willing to forgive repentant sinners. Now let's read the last portion of this story, verses 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, the older son. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, he, was, he, he has devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him? And then the father said, Son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. Here's point five on your outline. The fifth truth that this parable tells us, and that is the self-righteous response to the salvation of others is resentment. The self-righteous response to the salvation of others is resentment. And verse 29 reveals what appears to be a long smoldering bitterness in the older brother, and a similar sense of entitlement that we saw in the younger brother earlier. The younger son felt entitled to his inheritance because he shared the same name of his father. But notice, whereas the older son felt entitled to a celebration because he had been loyal to his father. In this closing act of the story, the older son represents the Jews and the Pharisees. Like the older son, with his earthly father, the Jews and the Pharisees had a self-righteous, self-sufficient, works-based view of their relationship with their heavenly father. Like the older son, they resented the fact that Jesus was extending grace and mercy to the immoral, irreligious Gentiles. The Jews and the Pharisees were basically complaining to Jesus, if I would paraphrase what they're angry about, I would say it like this, why should they receive for free what we've worked so hard to earn? See, what the Jews and the Pharisees kept missing is that they weren't capable of being good enough for God. And they were just as immoral as the Gentiles were. And like the younger son, they all needed grace and mercy and forgiveness. 
Now, here's, here's where this becomes a rub. And some of you might be sitting here going, well, you know, man, those, those Jews and Pharisees, they were messed up, man. I don't struggle with that. I mean, I, I think everybody needs grace and mercy and forgiveness, and I want everybody to come to Christ. Okay, how about someone that's hurt you deeply and wounded you, scarred you? What happens if, how would you feel if they repent and they come to faith in Christ? Would you want them saved? Would you want them to have a relationship with the Lord like you? You see, your response to that would reveal whether you are self-righteous or not. Your response would reveal whether you resent some people getting saved who you think don't deserve to be saved. It's the same issue that Jonah had in the book of Jonah when God told him to go and preach to the Ninevites. He didn't want to go preach to them. Because they were a vicious, barbaric people who had persecuted the Jews. Jonah didn't want them to get saved. So, the self-righteous response to the salvation of others is resentment. Because the self-righteous think they're better than others are. And Christians can be guilty of this as well. Christians can be guilty of, of thinking, well... I've worked hard on my sanctification and learning the Bible and walking with the Lord and dealing with sin in my life. Why does he or she get the same benefits when they, they sowed their wild oats and came to Christ later in life? There's a parable about that, actually, that we'll get to later in this series. So what do we do with this? How do we apply God's Word to our lives here. I mean, Jesus said in John chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him, but whoever does not love me does not keep my word. So, so how, do we, how do we take this parable and put it into action in our lives? Well, here's the first of two applications that come to mind. Again, if the, the Holy Spirit gives you another application, I want to encourage you to write it down and commit it to prayer this week. But here's the first of two that came to my mind. First of all, for unbelievers, I think the response to the prodigal son story should be to believe, repent, and surrender. To believe, repent, and surrender. If you do not yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to not procrastinate dealing with where you'll spend eternity. No one is promised or guaranteed tomorrow. The Scriptures teach that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He demonstrated his love for you by sending Christ to die on a cross for your sins and then resurrected him three days later so that you too could conquer death someday. The scriptures teach that anyone who forsakes their sin and surrenders their life to Christ will not have to spend eternity in hell paying for their sins. But instead, they will be able to receive the gifts of forgiveness and peace and eternal life and a relationship with the Lord by grace through faith in Christ's atoning work. Of course, if you have questions about how to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, please feel free to speak to me after this service or you can schedule a phone call or a Zoom call with me this week. Next. 
there's an application for believers that comes to mind. And that is to love Jesus more deeply and more faithfully and more passionately. The, the parable of the prodigal son should remind all Christ followers just how lost we were before our conversion and how merciful God was in bringing us to faith in Christ. You know, one of the greatest causes of spiritual apathy is thinking we're not as bad as we really are and that God isn't as good as he really is. And this is often caused by lack of time in the word. See, what I've, I've seen this in my own life. I can testify to this. The more time I have spent in God's word, doing my devotions over the years, I have learned I am I am way worse a sinner than I ever thought I was, and God is so much more gooder than I ever thought he was, if gooder could be a word. So maintaining a steady diet in the scriptures usually corrects this unbiblical thinking. This parable, it should motivate us to destroy that lie that by spending more time with the Lord in his word and in prayer and in praise to him. I see a great example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'd encourage you to look that up later, maybe in your devotions this week. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think it's verses 13 to 17, where Paul gives a little synopsis of his testimony. It's a short version of his testimony. And Paul, he gives high praise to the Lord for choosing him and using him in light of the fact that he saw himself as the worst or the foremost of sinners, he says. And what Paul shows us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 to 17, is that a decreasing view of self leads to an increasing view of God. And this, in turn, produces humility and gratitude and praise. And so, for believers, I would urge you to love Jesus more deeply and more faithfully and more passionately because of this story. Well, Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman was a traveling evangelist and gospel singer and pastor who ministered in the Northeast during the 19th century. He had in his church a professor of mathematics whose life had been ruined by sin, but he had come to faith in Christ through Chapman's preaching. One Sunday as Chapman was speaking to a group of men in his church, he told the men that just as Psalm 103 verse 12 declares that the Lord removes transgressions from the repentant sinner as far as the east is from the west. Turning to the professor of mathematics in his church, Chapman said, Professor, that is a mathematical proposition for you. How far is the distance from east to west? And so the professor reached for his pencil and his notebook and he began to scribble and try to make a calculation. And then suddenly he stopped and he burst into tears. And facing the group of men, he said, Brothers, you can't measure it. For if you put your stake here and east be ahead of you, 
and west behind you. You can go around the world and come back to your stake. And east will still be ahead of you and west still behind you. The distance is immeasurable. And thank God that it is. Because that is where my sins have gone. So I just have to ask, is, is this true of you? Have your sins been removed as far as the east is from the west because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It can be. It can be true of you because the holy God that we've offended is always, always willing to forgive repentant sinners. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.